Welcome to The Truth About Money. Rick Edelman here on KFI AM 640. You know, I want to talk about an important statistic about the stock market. Oh, you probably can guess what I'm going to say. The stock market is at an all-time high. This year, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500 Stock Index, all the major market indices, pretty much at or near all-time highs. We've had a series of all-time highs as the market has pretty steadily grown since January 1. But no, that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is the VIX. V-I-X, that's short for the CBOE Volatility Index. CBOE, that's the Chicago Board Options Exchange, they produce this index based on market volatility to track how volatile are stock market prices. The index in the month of June averaged 10.5. Now, just to put that number into perspective, 10.5 is about half the long-term historical average of stock market volatility. When's the last time you saw the stock market dominate the evening news? It's been a couple of years, not just a few weeks or months or even quarters. I mean, a couple of years that you've heard that the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped 400 points or fell 400 points. Instead, The stock market has been acting for well over a year like the tortoise among the hares. It has been slow and steady on an upward climb. Hey, we're all loving it. Don't get me wrong. Everybody's happy that the stock market is performing so well. And nobody's complaining that volatility has been low. My point to you is that you probably haven't even noticed You know, we don't tend to pay much attention to the weather when it's nice. We tend to notice when it's really, really windy and the trees are getting whipsawed. Or if we're out on the water, the whitecaps are there. That's when we begin to notice. But we can go for quite a while and all of a sudden we turn around and go, golly gee, it's been pretty calm on the waters lately. And that's what we've been experiencing in the stock market. And the reason I want to cite this for you is that this is unusual. It's very unusual for the volatility index, the VIX, to be half its normal level. And what that means is we shouldn't allow ourselves to be lulled into a false sense of confidence. We have to remember that what's going on lately is unusual, that at some point, volatility will return to the market. We don't know when, and we don't know to what degree, and we also even don't know which direction. Remember, volatility cuts both ways. Volatility means deviation from the median. You know, if you look at a bank account, let's say you've got $10,000 in your savings account. Do you know what the price per share is? It's a dollar. Your bank account value is always a dollar and it never deviates from a dollar. So if you deposit 10,000 of them, you have $10,000. That's the basis of it. But it's always a dollar. Never deviates, never fluctuates. That's why people like bank accounts, because of the safety of the asset. The stock market, though, we know is very different. At any given moment, take any stock you want to name, 
the price of that stock fluctuates constantly. Now, sometimes the fluctuation is high, meaning it's above its norm. Sometimes the fluctuation is low. It's below the norm. But that's the whole point of volatility. Volatility goes both ways. Of course, nobody ever complains about upside volatility. We only complain when we have downside volatility. But you can't have one without the other. And the point is, lately, we haven't had much volatility at all. Volatility one day will return. And I want to mention this to you now before it returns so that when it returns, you're not going to be shocked. You're not going to be in a position of having forgotten that these things can happen. This is why you buy an automobile, even if it's a convertible, it has the ability to put the top back up so that when the storm does return, you don't have to get soaked and you won't get shocked when the rain clouds begin to appear. That's the mere message that I want to convey to you right now. I'm not worried that you're getting overly giddy and greedy about the stock market. I think you realize that stock prices, well, they certainly go up. They don't always necessarily stay there. And this is why you have a diversified portfolio, right? You do, don't you? For the long term, right? Focusing on your long-term goals such as college for kids or retirement for yourself. And along the way, that volatility sometimes occurs. And market values, which if you look at your last month's statement and the month before that 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 and the month before that, they've all been higher one month following the next. But one day you're going to get a monthly statement, and guess what? The market value won't be higher than the one you had last month. It's the nature of volatility. It's all part of the game. And I just want to make sure you remember that volatility is, in fact, part of the game. And we haven't seen volatility in quite a while. So I just want to make sure that you're aware of it. Let me switch gears a little bit here and talk about Brigham and Women's. Uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston one of the largest employers in Boston, forget about the quality of its health care and the reputation of the facility, it's one of the largest employers in all of Boston. They've just announced buyout offers to 1,600 of its workforce. That's almost 9% of all the people working at Brigham and Women's Hospital. They're going to be losing their jobs. In order to take advantage of this buyout, workers will have to be 60 years of age or older. And the buyout offer includes one year of base pay and up to 20 months of health insurance. And those doctors working at the hospital or PhDs, forget it. They're not going to be eligible for this early retirement offer. The hospital is doing this because they're having trouble meeting costs. They got to cut their expenses. Payroll number one. My message to you is multifold. Number one, is there a risk that your employer might do this where you work? Second, should you accept the buyout offer if it's offered to you and you need to talk to a financial planner about it? Because are you going to be able to get a job elsewhere? If so, or how much are you going to be able to earn in that job? You need to figure all this out. And when you get this kind of news, it's shocking because the last thing people anticipate in their uh, 60s is that, golly gee, they're going to have to lose their occupation several years sooner than they thought in their pre-retirement planning. 
we can help you with this. We have offices throughout uh, the Boston area for those affected at Brigham and Women's. And if you have a situation where you work, no matter where you are across the country, we can assist you as well. And by the way, particularly since this is affecting Brigham and Women's Hospital, lots of nurses are going to be impacted by this. And so I want to remind you that at Edelman Financial Services, we provide free financial planning services for nurses. We do this for any nurse all across the country, no matter where you work. If you're a nurse, just call us at 888-PLAN-RIC. That's 888-752-6742 and say, hey, I'm a nurse. Hey, my spouse is a nurse. We will provide you with a free financial plan. It's because Gene and I are... Well, we just have a special thing for nurses in our hearts, and um, you know you're in the you're in the caring profession. One of the four caring professions: firefighters, police officers, school teachers are the other three. But nurses are unique. Why? Because firefighters, police officers, and school teachers almost always have a pension where they work. Nurses almost never do. And so we want to help provide you the financial planning resources to help you guide your investment strategy. And if you're facing a buyout by your employer, such as at Brigham and Women's Hospital, let us help you. So if you're a nurse or if you know someone who's a nurse, let them know at Edelman Financial Services, we're here with a very special offer, our way of saying thanks to you for all the work you do every day caring for others the way that you do. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money, 888-PLAN-RICK, online at ricestelman.com. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Do not use the show's content as the basis for any investment decisions. Instead, consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick Edelman is an investment advisor representative of Edelman Financial Services, a registered investment advisor which furnishes this program and also a registered principal of EF Legacy Securities and affiliated broker-dealer member FINRA SIPC. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. I'm Rick Edelman. You're here with uh, Brandon Corso on The Rick Edelman Show. We're Triple H Plan Rick. We're going to Brooklyn, New York. Raina's on the phone. How you doing, Raina? Very well, thank you. How are you? Terrific. How can we help? I have a basic question about the differences between a Roth IRA and a non-deductible IRA. Aren't they both uh, made with after-tax income? They are, Raina. They're both after-tax. Do you have either type right now? I have both, actually. Mm-hmm. You have both. Interesting. Which account, which of the two have you been funding most recently? The non-deductible. And I know Rick is not too in favor of that. Yeah, So, but there are reasons to do it. So let's walk through your situation to figure out which of those IRAs, deductible, non-deductible, and Roth, is best for you. So are you contributing to any plans, Raina, through your job or employer? Yeah, through the 401k. And how much are you maxing out the amount of money you can put into the 401k? Yeah. Terrific. And so you're maxing out the 401k. You're in a great position of saying, well, gosh, I have additional money I can save beyond that. And you're saying, what's the right account? And so to fund a IRA after that can make sense. And so if you're putting money into a non-deductible IRA, that means that your income is too high to contribute to a Roth. And I guess in the past, has it been lower and you've been eligible for a Roth, but that's not the case today? 
I guess that's part of my question. What are the income limits of a Roth? Are you a single taxpayer or do you file jointly? Single. So for a single taxpayer, there's a phase out, but it starts around 120000 of adjusted gross income. So what is your income? Adjusted gross may be just around that. So you're not alone where it's close to know whether or not you're eligible. And sometimes you don't know until literally the entire year has occurred. And that's right. one reason that when you put money into an IRA, you have up until April 15th of the year after the tax year you're contributing to. So it's okay. not unusual for us to say to our clients, look, ask your tax advisor around the time you're doing your taxes, what type of IRA am I eligible for? And in addition, if I do these different types, what are the tax benefits or how much tax savings can I have? So it may be that because you're right on the cusp of eligibility that you yeah. need to wait to determine, are you eligible for a Roth? And then how much can you put into a Roth IRA? So in a perfect world, we would want you to contribute to a deductible IRA. If you're not eligible to do that, then a Roth IRA. We're not big fans of the non-deductible IRA because there's no real particular tax benefit for doing so. You don't get a tax deduction now and you have to pay taxes later. So there's no real big benefit to doing it. And you have to file separate paperwork with the IRS every year. It's called Form 8606, telling the IRS that you, in fact, have made a contribution to a non-deductible IRA. And if you don't fill out the form, you have to pay a $50 penalty. And I'm convinced that 30 years from now, when you begin to make withdrawals, you're going to have forgotten that you made contributions to a non-deductible IRA. And when you make the withdrawals, you're going to pay taxes on money you pay taxes on years ago, resulting in double taxation. It's a big nuisance. And that's why, administratively, we're not big fans of non-deductible IRAs. Okay. That's what you explained in your book. But I just wanted to make sure that that really was the reason. Okay. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Raina. Glad we were able to confirm it for you. Take care. I'm Rick Edelman. This is Brandon Corso. We're in the studio here on The Rick Edelman Show. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Triple H, Plan Rick. We're heading out to Reston, Virginia. Chris, you're on the air. What can we do for you? Thank you, Rick and Brandon, for taking my call. My question involves switching advisory firms. Uh, not necessarily for any negative or pejorative reasons, but for some reason you need to switch. And one of the questions I've never probably captured correctly is the cost of doing that. I seem to remember in the past people telling me, oh, thanks, we'll take your investments, but we're going to need to sell them all, and we'll reinvest them ourselves for you. Can you kind of address that? Because otherwise I see that when you change firms, you could be generating tax events, uh, costs from sales, et cetera. Exactly correct, Chris. Uh, that is routine. When we, for example, in our firm, if a client comes to us and they have investments or savings elsewhere, we have a very specific way we manage money. Uh, we call it the Edelman Managed Asset Program. And it's fair to say that all advisors have their approach for managing money. And if you're going to hire the advisor, it's because you want to hire their money management skills, and that means you're going to enter their money management program. It means you're going to liquidate the money that you have invested elsewhere and transfer the cash over to us. Take a look at the expenses you'll incur in selling your current assets. You might incur taxes, you might incur liquidation charges, fees or expenses, uh, account closing costs, who knows what it might be, depending on where the money is at the moment, so that you can conclude whether or not it's in your best interest. Two of the things we have to evaluate, 
things. Number one, risk. Even though you might incur a significant cost to, uh, in taxes to sell an investment, you might be taking such a huge risk with that investment, selling it is in your best interest, even though there might be a tax associated. So risk is a big factor. And second, service. And related to that is breadth and depth of advice. In other words, you might not be getting the full level and array of services that you need and deserve from your current situation. And by moving your account to an advisory firm that provides a broader array of financial planning advice and service can compensate for the expenses that might be incurred in making that transition. Does that make sense? It does. And if a follow-up question then, does it matter the type of money? Because some monies are in 401ks, some are in regular investment savings plan. Does that color of that money make any difference? It does, Chris. And so, as Rick said, we have to look at all costs associated with moving or liquidating your accounts, whether it's a tax which is a cost to you, or a liquidation fee, or a transaction fee. But within those tax-deferred accounts, you wouldn't pay tax if you liquidate the securities. So it's a simpler decision, perhaps, on those types of accounts as it is the taxable accounts. But I don't want to lose sight of you need to look deeply at each and every type of account that you have. And so this all goes into the calculation of, does this make sense for some of the money, for all of the money, for none of the money? Should we do some of it now? Should we do some of it later? Uh, what's the bigger picture going on that we're trying to address? And the answer will be different for different folks. But uh, I agree with you. You should not assume that moving always makes sense. Gotcha. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your counsel. You're very welcome. We really appreciate your uh, phone call. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money with Triple H Plan Rick online at ricedelman.com. More of your calls when we come back. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. Truth About Money, Rick Edelman here with Brandon Corso. Anytime you need help, call us at 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at ricedelman.com. Click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor. We're heading up to take some more telephone calls. We're talking with Steve in Cary, North Carolina. How are you, Steve? Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking my call. Rick, my wife and I started a small business 10 years ago, and we're getting ready to sell it and retire uh, next year in 2018. And the business is probably will sell for about a half a million dollars. And I foresee a capital gains tax as high as 31% of that. Between state and um, federal, you mean? Between state and federal. Got it. So I see a chance to eliminate those taxes and to support a charity that I believe in. And I'd like your opinion on avoiding that tax by establishing a charitable remainder trust. Okay. First question, can you afford to live without this money? Um, Meaning, is this money an not, integral part of your I, overall financial needs? Not the way means? I would like to. Not the way I would like to. Okay. Um, I have uh, done a lot of calculations using the kind of the 4% withdrawal rule, and I would need the money. That is the biggest impediment 
to the notion of creating a CRT. Brandon, you want to back up a little bit for folks and explain what a charitable remainder trust is? Yeah, absolutely. And let me do so in the context of what Steve's trying to do, because some of these strategies can seem uh, hard to connect with, the less we're talking about a real live case. So Steve has a business and he's talking about selling it. And right, he's already said that I've looked at it, and if I sell it, I'm going to lose a third of my money to taxes. So he loses 150 grand out of 500,000. Right. So it only makes sense to say what other strategies might I employ that could lessen that tax bite. And what Steve said was, there's a charity that's important to him. And so what a charitable remainder trust does in relation to Steve's business is Steve would gift the business to a charity. An irrevocable trust would be set up to receive it, and then the the charity would actually sell the business. And guess what? If the charity sells the business, there is no tax. Because charities are tax exempt. Exactly. At the same time, there is an arrangement, an agreement, if you will, set up. The trust is going to say something to the effect that all of the income from the investments that are designed after the business is sold is going to go to Steve and his family. And when Steve passes away, whatever is left, the this, remainder, the remainder goes to the charity. And it's very powerful from a tax perspective. Not only would it eliminate the capital gains tax, but Steve would get a gift tax deduction as well based on some future expected value of the gift. And so this has a double whammy. Not only are you avoiding the tax, you're generating a tax deduction and preserving your ability to produce the income that you want to produce. And the neat thing is that you'd be generating income off the full 500000 as opposed to generating income off of only 350000 And as a result, it's a little bit easier to produce the income you're looking for. The downsides, however, are... Well, the irrevocable part. Exactly. And so, um, I, Steve, in other words, Steve, once you do this, you can't undo it. If you ever want to get access to, say, fifty grand for a round-the-trip cruise or uh, around-the-world cruise, or because you want to pay tuition for a grandchild, or you need a heart operation, you can't have access to the money. All you'll ever get is that monthly income. Yeah, I understand that part about it. I could, I think, I could live with that. I have. Um, my goal is to end up with $6,000 a month, and I have, after taxes, and I have saved up right at a million dollars in IRAs. So um, so it sounds on I'm the not, surface. I don't think I would ever have to touch that capital. Well, think about that. You, you need six grand a month net after tax, and how much will you and your wife receive from Social Security? Uh, when when she's sixty five, she'll get about fifteen hundred, and when I'm seventy, I'll get about twenty eight hundred. And how many years is it before those two things happen? Uh, quite a few. Uh, let's see. When my my because... wife is four, has four years to go, uh, and I would I would have ten years to go. Because. You're talking about forty three hundred a month from Social Security between the two of you, and you said you only needed a six grand a month. So uh, after taxes, yeah. So you're in much better shape than you think. So the bottom line is, yes, you are a candidate for consideration of a charitable remainder trust. Whether or not that means you should actually do it, we would need to do much more analysis and calculations to determine it, uh, and to to make sure that in fact this is the proper strategy for you. 
Uh, so I would encourage you to um, sit down with a financial advisor and an estate attorney who is skilled and experienced in dealing with charitable remainder trusts to make sure that you understand fully how they work, you understand the implications and limitations. Do the necessary tax analysis to confirm that it is going to give you the bang for the buck that you're really looking to do. Okay, thank you, Rick. Are there other vehicles that do accomplish the same thing? Not in the context of tax saving, Steve. If you're looking to save taxes and selling the business, this is at the top. Um, and so I would, when Rick started the conversation, he said, do you need this? The fact that you've got an, another million dollars in investments in the IRAs makes me pretty optimistic that you would have liquidity and accessibility to other funds. And we just need to sit down and look at it in much more detail to make sure, in fact, that locking this up in the irrevocable trust is okay. Steve, can I ask you a separate question? What's your annual income? What salary do you draw from your business? We are making between us, my wife and I, we're pulling out about 110. About $110,000 a year. Uh, I would venture to say that your business might be even worth more than $500,000 if you have uh, that kind of income coming off of it. If you think about it, the buyer of the business fires you. They now have $110,000 of free cash flow. If they're only paying $500,000 for the business, that's a 20% free cash flow. Um, that would strike me that the cap rate uh, is a little bit low that you're dealing with. And uh, so I would want you to make sure you're getting good financial advice on the sale of your business to make sure you are, in fact, maximizing the value of your business in the sale. Okay. Let me also mention one other thing, which is really exciting. Steve is a, a wonderful entrepreneur, uh, has been very, very successful. He's given himself, he and his wife, jobs for these years, making $110,000 a year. And then, oh, by the way, when he decides to quit the job, he gets a check for half a million bucks. Not, not bad. Entrepreneurship is the way to go That's if awesome. you're looking for how to generate income in America. Be an entrepreneur and enjoy the capitalist society that America has been founded on. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. It is The Truth About Money. Brandon Corso here with me in the studio. I'm really excited to let you know that our seminar, Preparing for Retirement, is coming to your town. Go to my website at rickedelman.com and uh, the full listing of when and where we're bringing the seminar. That's ricedelman.com, online at rickedelman.com. Stay with us. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. The Rick Edelman Show continues. Triple Eight Plan Rick. Brandon Corso, Rick Edelman here with you. Off to Skokie, Illinois. Ephraim's with us on the phone. How you doing, Ephraim? Fine, Rick. How are you? Doing wonderful, thank you. What can we do for you? Okay, I'd like to know if there is an optimum way to invest your tax-sheltered accounts if you have to take a required minimum distribution. Do you go for income to take advantage of the tax deferral or equity to, for possible growth? Do you set up a predetermined allocation of the two? Or is this part of your overall allocation? Or do you have a plan B? I want to make sure I'm following your question. You want to know what's the best way to invest your money in order to handle the distributions once you're 70 and a half. Correct. Brandon? Maybe to minimize them. To minimize the distributions? Possibly, yeah. Well, you can't. Re required minimum distribution. Yeah. yeah. Brandon, explain the RMD sure, and sure. how that works. So the RMD is the required minimum distribution, and it's a rule that says on retirement accounts – 
April 1st of the year following the year you turn 70 and a half, you who, need to begin distribution. Who wrote that rule? Somebody who's trying to trick people, it seems. April so, 1 of the year after the year you turn 70 so and a half. So it's far too confusing that it needs to be. Now, in most cases, people take money out the year they turn 70 and a half. Okay? Yeah. And so for all the retirement accounts, assuming that you've retired and you're no longer working and have an account with your employer, you have to make a distribution. And so there's a calculation that's very important. You look at the value of the account on a certain date. You go to a government life expectancy table and you take out a number and you divide the value by that number. And it gives you the magic required distribution amount. In other words, Ephraim, the government determines yep. how much money you must withdraw each year. It is based on the value of the account. So there's nothing you can do about it. It's not within your control. The only way to reduce the amount you must withdraw is to reduce the value of the account. And that's not in your best interest. Well, and Ephraim, you were asking one question about should you invest the retirement account for growth or should you invest it maybe more conservatively for income and therefore you're picturing yeah. the value not being as high? Correct. Yeah, so you see okay. that's not a good strategy, right? Okay. Right. So what you want to do is invest the money appropriately for your circumstances in a diversified portfolio that's a combination of growth and income mm -hmm. to have the account grow within your risk tolerance, commensurate with achieving your goals, and then when you reach age 70 and a half, you just withdraw the money that the IRS says you have to withdraw, call okay. today. Okay, that was number three on my options. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry we couldn't uh, make it any uh, easier for you, but... Um, uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, so there you are, Ephraim. Make, uh, make the money, pay the tax, move on. Fine. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. That's Ephraim from uh, Skokie, Illinois. You know, it's really fascinating, Brandon, how often a lot of people are trying to minimize taxes. We get calls a lot from folks like Ephraim who... the basic aspect of their question is, how do I lower my taxes with my investments? That's really the wrong focus, isn't it? Well, it is. If you think of Ephraim's question, I mean, you're rooting for that IRA or retirement account to be as big as it could possibly be, even though that means you have a higher tax liability when the money comes out. So, I mean, if somebody's going to walk into your office and say, guess what? You get a raise. Your income's going to double. You're never going to say, no, don't do that. My, my taxes are going to be higher. You're still going to end up with more money even after you have higher taxes. So that can be the wrong focus yeah. if that's the first thing you're thinking of. Yeah, Congress took away all our toys. There now is under the tax code very few ways to reduce your tax liability. I mean, you could uh, get a house with a mortgage. You could have a baby. You could start a business. Uh, there's not a whole lot else uh, for ordinary individuals to lower their taxes. You can, oh, maybe buy some solar panels for your roof and get a, uh, a tax incentive for doing that and, and so on. But the ability to dramatically reduce your tax liability through strategy is sharply gone. It's, it's not the 80s anymore. Uh, exactly. It's not the 80s. Uh, so Tax Reform Act of 1986 pretty much ended that party. That was 30 years ago. So forget about it. Instead, the message of today is develop a sophisticated portfolio designed to meet your needs, one that is globally diversified in your best interest, that manages risks, fees, and taxes – and as part of all the above, you pay the taxes that are due and you move on. Uh, don't focus on taxes as the primary investment goal or you could end up hurting yourself. I'd much rather 
make a lot of money and pay a lot of taxes than not make a lot of money in order to lower those taxes. Hope that makes sense. If you've got any questions about this and how it can apply to your personal situation, call us at 888-PLAN-RIC. That's what Ephraim did, and you can do the same. That's 888-752-6742. Let us take a look at your investment portfolio. Let us look at your strategies. Compare them to your goals. What is it you're trying to accomplish? And we can help make sure that you aren't unnecessarily paying taxes that are easily avoidable. For example, using an IRA instead of a taxable account, uh, or making sure that you're maxing out your 401k before investing elsewhere. So there are a couple of things we may be able to identify for you. Let's make sure you're optimizing the strategy while at the same time not being foolhardy about it. Let us know if we can help you. Triple Eight Plan Rick. Go online to ricestelman.com. Press that red button, and we'll uh, be happy to answer your questions that uh, you have about your personal finances. I'm Rick Edelman. You're here with uh, Brandon Corso on the Rick Edelman Show. We're Triple Eight Plan Rick. So this is the truth about money. Mac, welcome to the program. How can we help? Oh, thank you for taking my call. It's my privilege to talk to you. You're welcome. Um, I have a question about uh, revocable trust. Can you tell me what it is, how we can set it up? We sure can. Now, can you give me some type of uh, starting point? Are you asking about it because you heard a commercial on the air? Are you asking because you sat down with an estate planning attorney that was talking about the document? Um, I I heard on the um, uh, PBS station uh, about the revocable trust. Okay. And I'm concerned, you know, how we can transfer our properties to to our uh, sons and daughters. And, and you say properties. Do you have uh, real estate properties? Yes. And are they yes. in only one state, or are they dispersed and you have them in, in more than one state? They're in one state. Okay. Do you and your wife have an estate plan now? By that, I mean you might have a will, a power of attorney, advanced medical directives. Do you have any of those documents currently? Yes, we have will and um, power of attorney. Okay. So the revocable living trust is another means or mechanism for you to manage your property while you're alive and distribute your assets when you pass away. One of the primary advantages of the living trust is that if done properly, you can avoid probate. And so that could be a big benefit to your children if you title things into the trust. Okay. And so... If you're going to do the type of document, you have two choices. Either you're going to decide, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to buy software. I'm going to go online. I'm going to read a book, and I'm actually going to draft this legal document. Or you're going to say, to heck with that. I don't know how to do it. I don't want to spend the time. And you need to reach out to a competent, qualified estate planning attorney to sit down with you and ask, what is it, what is it that you're trying to accomplish and explain how should the trust be drafted? And so we've always felt the latter makes a lot more sense because you're going to spend some money, but it's going to be done correctly. You don't run the risk that you, you do the trust, but it's not legal. Um, and so that would be the mechanism is you sit down with a, an attorney to do your entire estate plan and the trust gets drafted uh, in that process. And th this trust will only apply to the real estate property or can, can it be to the uh, uh, stocks and bonds? the stocks and bonds as well. So it can own anything except for retirement accounts. So if you have an IRA or a 401k or a 403b, 
often non-qualified annuities. The trust won't own those. But remember, all of those types of accounts you have beneficiary designations for. So when you and your wife pass away, they're going to pass directly to whoever you've listed, presumably your children. So the living trust is going to own all the other stuff. So if you have a joint account, um, an individual account, uh, all the real estate, that's what's going to be titled to your living trust. Does that make sense? Yes. The second question I had was, I have put a POD in my accounts, like joint joint accounts. Okay. Um, is is that good enough for not to probate? Yes, on that account specifically. But you have other accounts. You mentioned your real estate where it would go through probate. So if you have a POD or TOD, and that stands for payable on death for a bank account or a transfer on death for a brokerage account, then yes, you've listed beneficiaries. They wouldn't go through probate. But sometimes people set up those and think, oh, I, I don't have to worry about probate. But usually you can't have all of your accounts, like real estate, that would pass um, directly to your children. And so the payable on death might work for your bank account, Mac, but it's not going to work for your real estate. Okay. So I, I think at a, at a minimum, I think it makes sense to talk to an attorney who could draft it for you. If you do that, your job is not done. Once you draft the trust, you need to work with your financial advisor to make sure all of the accounts get retitled properly. And retitled with the POD, you're saying, or TOD? Well, if you do a trust, it would be titled to the trust itself. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. Mac, I hope that helps. Thanks for calling The Truth About Money. 888-PLAN-REC. That's 888-752-6742. Your phone calls when we come back. Stay with us here on The Rick Edelman Show. It's hour two of the Rick Edelman Show on KFI AM 640. Thanks for hanging around this half hour. You know what? It's been several months since I have talked with you about Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is the most uh, well-known, most prominent digital currency that exists in the marketplace. And uh, the question has been arising lately about the viability of Bitcoin. People have been asking me, Rick, should I invest in Bitcoin? Should I buy them? Well, let me just share with you a little bit of a refresher course here. Bitcoin was developed and brought to the marketplace in 2009 by somebody who is anonymous. Nobody knows who developed it. The underlying technology that allows Bitcoin to operate is called the blockchain. And the blockchain has been catching a huge amount of attention by the financial services industry, the banking industry, the credit card industry, uh, the insurance industry, as well as governments around the globe, recognizing that the blockchain has the potential to truly revolutionize the financial services industry in all respects. And there have been a lot of research underway uh, by private sector, as well as academia and government in the analysis and development of blockchains. Recently, for example, Accenture and Microsoft unveiled a blockchain-based digital ID network that's going to provide legal identification to more than a billion people worldwide without the need for official documents. They revealed this at the United Nations recently, the project aiming to make it easy for people to prove who they are to gain access to critical services, including education and health care, as well as access to their own personal information, no matter where they are on the planet. 
The State Department has created a new working group focused on the blockchain. It's Blockchain at State, overseen by the Office of Global Partnerships. They're going to track developments in blockchain on a national basis. The announcement from the State Department says, quote, blockchain is not just for Bitcoin and it's not just for the private sector. Nations and cities around the world are actively using this technology to transform the work of government. This is happening now, and the Department of State cannot afford to wait to explore applications of this technology to the work of international development and diplomacy, unquote. State Department is not the only one. HHS is doing it as well. So is the Commerce Department. And in Delaware, the governor there has signed a bill making it legal to use blockchain for stock trading and record keeping. The Commodities Futures Trading Commission has now granted approval for derivatives contracts settling in digital currencies. It's the first time we're going to see an options exchange and clearinghouse in the United States. All of this meaning that we've got, well, one researcher says Bitcoin is going to double in value to $5,000 next year and hitting twenty-five dollars to $50,000 over the next 10 years. Abigail Johnson, who's the CEO of Fidelity, says she's a huge believer in Bitcoin. And Fidelity is going to start showing Bitcoin balances on their own account statements if you buy them from an exchange called Coinbase. Abigail Johnson says she's been encouraging Fidelity employees to experiment with Bitcoin and digital currencies. For example, they can use Bitcoin to buy food in the Fidelity cafeteria. Not everybody, though, is sold. Howard Marks is a big hedge fund manager. He doesn't believe in digital currencies. He told CNBC a week or so ago, quote, in my view, digital currencies are nothing but an unfounded fad or perhaps even a pyramid scheme. He compared digital currencies to the tulip mania of 1637, the South Seas bubble of 1720, and the Internet bubble of 1999. He said, quote, serious investing consists of buying things because the price is attractive relative to intrinsic value. Speculation, on the other hand, occurs when people buy something without any consideration of the underlying value or the appropriateness of the price. That's Howard Marks. He doesn't agree with it. And if you saw a recent cover story in Forbes magazine, here's what they called it, the craziest bubble ever. Bitcoin, it says, has spawned a $100 billion cryptocurrency mania with an article, quote, how smart people are making stupid money off greedy fools. That's Forbes magazine, July 27th. In fact, it's so dynamic in its development that on August 1st, Bitcoin is likely to split itself into two. You're going to have two separate Bitcoin blockchains and two separate digital currencies. Bitcoin itself, BTC, which has been around since 2009, and a new version, Bitcoin Cash, BCC. Why? Because the developers, the programmers, the coders, who have been operating the Bitcoin blockchain, haven't been able to agree on a key fundamental aspect of how fast trading ought to settle. It's a lot more complicated than that, but we'll leave it there. And so they decided to have a fork. They're going to go their separate ways, creating Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash. It's hard to predict how long Bitcoin Cash will survive or even if it's going to have a future market value, but it shows what's going on. And then there's Alexander Vinnick, a Russian, recently charged with running a black market Bitcoin exchange that helped launder more than $4 billion 
and facilitated ransomware fraud, identity theft, drug trafficking, and corporate public corruption. Criminals who stole or extorted Bitcoin from their victims used his exchange to convert Bitcoin into traditional currency. He's under arrest and facing trial. In fact, there are now four times as many cryptocurrencies in circulation as fiat currencies. A fiat currency is a currency issued by a real government. There are now four times as many cryptocurrencies as fiat currencies. The Swiss Association for Standardization, that's the organization that maintains a database, they count 177 national currencies around the world. You know, the dollar, the yen, the euro, and so on. 177 national currencies. You know how many digital currencies there are? 753 and growing. So where do I stand on all this? What's my take? Well, I've told you for years now that I own a small amount of Bitcoin. I told you originally that I was investing in Bitcoin, buying it as part of my research into exponential technologies and the blockchain. What better way to understand Bitcoin and the blockchain than to participate in it? And so I told you that I owned a de minimis amount of Bitcoin for that reason. Well, my attitude has changed a little bit, and now I still do own Bitcoin, although I've bought more, and I also now own Ethereum, which is a new emerging digital currency. Gene and I uh, not only own them, it's well under 1% of our investment portfolio, so we're talking a very small amount, but we're buying more on a weekly basis through dollar cost averaging because it's so volatile, the prices of these currencies, that by dollar cost averaging, the goal is to smooth out the volatility over a long basis. Quite frankly, these things are ridiculously speculative and volatile. It is stupidly cumbersome to buy them. You have to use an online exchange, and it's very expensive too. Trading fees are typically 2% or more each way of the trade. There's high risk that the exchange will collapse. Many of them already have. A tech breach could result in theft of your coins. That has already happened. Remember when Mt. Gox went broke and $500 million of Bitcoin were lost forever? You could also lose your key, which is access online, causing you to lose your coins forever. That has happened to people, too. And you have to record profits, but it's cumbersome. Have to report it on Schedule D because the IRS says Bitcoin is property, not a security. There are nearly, as I said, 800 digital currencies, others yet to be invented. Who knows which one is going to become dominant, if any of them? All the current coins could be like Confederate dollars, worthless, when a new one comes about and dominates. All that said, in my view... It's appropriate to consider digital currencies and companies building blockchains, the underlying technology. And so I encourage you to talk with your financial advisor about it. See if it's something that you should consider and how best do you can go about participating. But if your advisor, you know, keep in mind, these are not securities. There's no mechanism for your financial advisor to sell you digital currency like he could a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund. So you're largely on your own in that regard. But your advisor ought to be able to be conversational about it. Your advisor ought to be familiar with digital currencies and the blockchain to be able to help you understand how they work. And if your advisor isn't 
competent in that area, doesn't understand blockchain or digital currency, or just blows it off as a Ponzi scheme for you to ignore, well, you know what? I might recommend that you consider finding an advisor who knows a little more than that. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money, 888-PLAN-RICK, online at ricedelman.com. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. We're continuing with our telephone calls. Uh, Brandon Corso in the studio with me. I'm Rick Edelman. We're going out to West Orange, New Jersey. Robert's standing by. How you doing, Robert? Welcome to the show. I'm fine. How can uh, we help you? I I have a question. Uh, I have uh, listened to you over the years, and I have a great deal of stuff uh, in my investments in a single stock. And I think I'm finally ready to consider reducing that investment, although it's been very successful. So I have 27% of my portfolio, and I'd like to reduce it, I guess, over to down below 10%, and I think probably over a number of years. Uh, my total assets are $8 million, and the single stock is $2.2 million, and it does pay a nice qualified dividend of about $50,000 per year. I was looking for some general strategies of how I might most efficaciously uh, dispose of that. I'm assuming you worked for this employer, uh, for this yes. company. Yes. And, uh, yes. Yeah, but so, I'm retired now. Got it. So congratulations. Good for yeah. you. Um, terrific job at accumulating assets over this a is career. A, this is a great problem to have. It's the kind that uh, everybody yeah. aspires and hopes for. So, um, Robert, in terms of techniques to how you're going to diversify and lessen risks, you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to focus more on risk reduction or potentially reducing the amount of tax you pay? Because if you're focused solely on lowering risk, you're going to say 10% is the maximum I feel comfortable or that is appropriate having in this security. You're going to go sell it, right? You're going to sell it tomorrow. Can we assume your basis is near zero? Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, it is basically zero. Most of the stock I've owned for like some stock plans or whatever for like 35 years. Right. So in other words, if he sells this $2 million stock, he's going to owe a capital gains tax of about 25 percent. Plus, uh, uh, you live in New Jersey. Oh, my goodness. Which is one of the highest state income tax rates in the nation. So you're going to pay close to 35 percent in taxes. All right. So that's the bad news. The good news is that you've just lowered your risk. The whole reason you're considering this is you're concerned that that stock is going to lose a lot of value. Because if you weren't worried about that, you wouldn't be diversifying and forcing some level of tax. So the negative of paying a lot of tax, you've got a way, well, the positive is I'm more protected. My money would be safer. It's not as exposed. Right. And so which way are you going to lean? Maybe you can sell it over the course of years and pay a little bit less tax, but by doing so, your your risk is higher, you're more exposed, and if the market in that stock falls, then obviously whatever tax savings you were going to have could be outweighed by your loss. Yeah, I agree completely with Brandon. Unless you're assuming you will keep it for as long as you live so that your children inherit it, at which point they will avoid the tax. Right, maybe, right. So unless you're going to do that, then sell it all, sell it now. Pay the tax, move on. Okay, thank you. You're very welcome. Boy, he just took a five hundred thousand dollar 
bill pretty well. Pretty darn well. Yeah. Pretty so, darn well. Uh, but but you know it's interesting. He's he's being really wise. He's saying he's focusing more on the risk and saying if I have a quarter of my money in that stock, well it could lose half of its value over the course of right. who know, who knows how many months. And so you might lose you know, half of 2.2 million, I think is what he said he had in the stock. Right. And so that's really the key is to not take our eye off the ball. Let's remain focused. The key is protection of the assets. At this stage of Robert's life, he's retired. He's got $8 million. Doubling the $8 million isn't going to double his lifestyle. Well, that's that, and that's a very good point. At this point, if he's achieved all his goals for him and his family because of what he's been able to accumulate through his hard work and saving, then you got to you. I mean, why are you taking so much risk? Exactly. If you can have a lower return, if you can have less risk and still achieve everything, then that sounds like a exactly. Smart and way so, to go. and so there are potentially some strategies that are available to lower somewhat the tax liability. As you said, Brandon, he could perhaps sell a little bit of it over a period of a few years. The downside is he's still stuck holding it till then. He might consider gifting some of it. For example, if he gifts some of the stock to children or grandchildren, and they're in a lower tax bracket, then they sell the stock at their tax rate. Well. And I'm glad you brought that one up because that one could be really powerful, especially for how much money that Robert has amassed. Because, you know, it used to be with a capital gain that there was a flat rate, right? It didn't matter how much you sold or when. Well, that's not exactly true today. There's actually four rates. And so the capital gain rate, if you're in the bottom two brackets, is zero on the federal level. So if he's in a position that he wants to gift some to his kids or grandkids, all of a sudden they could sell it and potentially pay a far lower tax than he would pay. And then there, but of course the downside is he's given them the money. Well, that's a big, well. (laughs) So that goes into it as well. And Robert, let me ask you this. Do you, uh, do you. Fortunately, they're in higher tax brackets than I am. And my grandchildren are not 14 yet. I said used to be the cutoff. Uh, so again, we want to you know see if the strategy is valid there. How about charity, Robert? Do you give any money to charities? Yeah, yeah I give a lot to charities. All right, perfect. Okay, yeah. so he's doing everything he can, and just to elaborate for everybody else listening, instead of giving money to a charity, most folks who do it, they just write a check. You know, we you know I'll write a check to the charity, and you get a tax deduction for it. Don't do that. Don't give cash to a charity. Instead, give them shares of your stocks or shares of your mutual funds. Why? Because this way the appreciation shifts from you to the charity, but they're tax exempt. So they don't pay any taxes when they sell the security and neither did you, but you still get the full tax deduction. So uh, donating appreciated assets is a very effective way to uh, lower your tax liability. So uh, Robert's already doing all the above and, uh, and that's great news. So you can uh, talk with a financial advisor for solutions to these kinds of things of, uh, Uh, How do you minimize the taxes, maximize the maintenance of your lifestyle so that you're able to maintain and achieve your goals? Uh, And if you're not familiar with how to do it, do exactly what Robert did. Get confirmation of your approach, of your strategies. Make sure there isn't anything you've missed or haven't thought of or that you haven't considered uh, negative repercussions. We can provide that sounding board for you as a second opinion. 888-PLAN-RIC, that's the phone number Robert called, and you can call it too. 888-752-6742. Or online at ricedelman.com. Click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor, and we'll be happy to help you. We'll be back. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom.
Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show, Triple H Plan Rick. Let's head on out to Boxborough, Massachusetts. Brandon Corso with me in the studio. I'm Rick Edelman. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you? Terrific. How can we help you? Well, I'm 56. Um, I started saving in my 20s because I wanted to retire someday. Awesome. And, and the target date has been uh, 59 and a half. And I, I want the listeners to know that it's always good to have a plan, but always be ready to change your plan mm-hmm. because there's things that life will throw at you that you don't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's happened in recently is because of this opiate crisis that's been going around the country, I have a five-year-old nephew that now lives with me. Wow. And so, so that changes my plan. Thank goodness he and has you. That's a real yeah, line. I mean, he's, he's, a wonderful, he's a wonderful kid. He's a terrific kid. And it's not his fault. So, you know, he's, he's great. The problem is that I don't know if I can still plan to retire at 59 and a half with the, with the major issue being the health insurance, the cost of the health insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that doesn't kick in, I, if I'm correct, I don't think uh, Medicare kicks in until 65. So what I was thinking is I can work... 21 hours or 20, 22 hours part-time, still collect health insurance, but not uh, collect my retirement until I hit 65 mm-hmm. and just live more frugally mm-hmm. and have some time off uh, between, say, 61 or 62 and 65. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a sound plan, though. Conceptually, it is, Chris, and that's exactly what I was going to suggest to you, that you don't have to work full-time if your primary goal are health insurance benefits. As you said, you can work on a part-time basis just enough for your employer to cover you under their program. So that's exactly correct. However, this assumes that you have sufficient total income and other financial resources to maintain the lifestyle you've got because you now have an extra mouth to feed. And you know the drill, the costs of raising a five-year-old are substantial. So given that you now have this added expense, can you afford the double whammy of a reduced income with an added expense at the same time? Well, that's the that's the $64,000 question. Uh, and um, All right, it's easy to figure out. We can't do it on the radio because it's going to take an hour or two instead of a minute or two. But what we want right. to do is take a look at how much money you have saved, where have you saved it, Uh, What are your monthly expenses? And then we can tell you how much income you need to earn from gainful employment to supplement your investment income in order for you to maintain your lifestyle, which is now being adjusted by the addition of a five-year-old into the household. Right. Now, isn't it also true that I cannot collect retirement and work because of the um, tax laws? That's correct, uh, Chris. Until you hit what is they call it your full retirement age, there is a limit in how much income you can be receiving from work and still get Social Security. And it's a pretty low number. It's it's around 14000 a year. So you're going to have to wait to collect Social Security. So, yeah, that- uh, so we need to go through this methodology in uh, greater detail than the radio allows us to do. But it's not difficult. When you say it's a $64,000 question, uh, it's probably the $6 million question, but it's <laughs> one easily tackled. We do this all the time. This is a fundamental aspect of financial planning. Uh, you're absolutely right. People need to anticipate unexpected changes 
uh, and that might occur in their lives. And you say to yourself, well, how can you expect an unexpected change? Well, there could be a change in health, uh, job status, marital status, attitude, all of which can be pre-planned for, for example, through disability insurance or life insurance or increased cash reserves uh, and other strategies, including the investment management, to adjust for these things that may occur. Notice we don't know when a black swan event might occur, but it's a fair bet that one will develop at some point or another. And it might not merely be bad news that triggers this. As you pointed out, a really horrific experience in your family due to uh, the drug problem in America. But it could be equally good news, too. I mean, when your daughter announces she's getting married, you just wrote a check for 30 grand, dude. You know, so even right. good news is expensive. It's not just bad news that can put a wrinkle in the plan. So for all of these reasons, the financial planning process is key. You're a perfect candidate for it now. Uh, you're highly motivated to do it because you've got a five-year-old dependent on you. And we've got offices not far from you in Massachusetts. Uh, so let us go through the planning process with you to examine what are your assets, what are your resources, what are your needs, and then we can help you craft that plan to make sure you can accomplish everything you're trying to accomplish. When when you do the planning, how uh, what's the lifespan, your typical lifespan that you plan for? Chris, by that you mean how long are we going to assume you and your wife live? Yeah. Sometimes there's a dialogue and we talk about it and we ask about family history, but as a financial advisor, one of our biggest risks is that our clients are going to run out of money. So we want to assume right. a pretty long life expectancy. We'll start by talking about age 100 and adjust it there as needed. That shocks okay, people. That shocks people a lot because it, a lot of it, folks. It doesn't shock. It doesn't shock me because you know, we, my, my wife and I live a very healthy lifestyle. We plan to live to 100. Good. You and know, I would argue you know, that that you should probably not be surprised to live to 110 or 120. That's the theme of my new book, The Truth About Your Future. Massive innovations in medicine and neuroscience, uh, nanotechnology and 3D printing are all creating through bioinformatics, bionics, uh, and materials science, uh, massive innovations that are going to dramatically extend our life expectancies even further than what we've thought. When I got started in this business in the 1980s, we used to routinely tell clients to project they would live to age 85. That was heresy back then because life expectancy back then was in the 70s. Today, according to the American Society of Actuaries, life expectancy is 88 well, guess what it'll be by the time you are 88. Uh, and so you're absolutely right uh, to anticipate, Chris, that you are likely to live the 95, 100, 105. And it's why it's so important that we develop a financial plan to enable you to do so financially. Doesn't it also change how late you have to work? I mean, if I'm going to live to 105, does that mean I have to work till 1180? Likely so. Chances are you're not going to retire as you had originally anticipated. That's another major theme of my book, The Truth About Your Future, because of exactly what you said. If you are going to live to 105, economically retiring at 65 is ridiculous. Nobody's going to 
be able to afford a 40-year retirement. Also, you're going to be so healthy because medical science will get rid of all the current maladies afflicting the aged that you're going to want it to keep working because you'll be healthy enough to do so. You're going to want to contribute. You're going to want to generate income. You won't have to work full-time at a big deal job like you did in your 50s, but you're going to continue doing something for 10 or 20 or 30 hours a week, but you'll do what you want, where you want, with who you want, making the kind of money you want to supplement your income. Uh, so it'll be simply a part of your lifestyle, and you'll engage and massive amounts of leisure and recreation all at the same time. So you'll have a very different form of lifestyle than your parents and grandparents ever did. You can get full information on this in my uh, New York Times business bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, and you're thinking about it exactly correct, Chris. Wonderful. Thank so you, sir. You're very welcome. Just call us at the same number you called us today, 888-PLAN-RICK, and uh, we'll arrange a meeting with uh, one of our colleagues in our offices in Massachusetts so that we can take a detailed look at your situation and help make sure that your future is everything that you want it to be. That phone number, 888-752-6742, or you can go online uh, to rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Click that red button, I want to talk to an advisor, and we'll be able to do for you what we've done for thousands of people just like you. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. It's the Truth About Money. Rick Edelman here with Brandon Corso. Anytime you need help, call us at 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at ricedelman.com. Click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor. We're heading off to Abington, Massachusetts. Gary's with us on the telephone. Gary, welcome to the program. You're on with Brandon Corso and Rick Edelman. How are you? Good. Hi, Rick and Brandon. Thank you for taking my call. Hello, Gary. How can Hello. we help? Uh, as, as it seems to be coming more the phase, I have a daughter who uh, is completing an undergraduate, but she changed majors, et cetera. So she is no longer full-time. She's working. She's finishing up her degree part-time. My main question is her student loans are coming due, and she's possibly going to be looking at grad school a year from now. So mostly what are her best options to start paying it off but leaving some room for margin if she does go back to school full-time in a year? Gary, what is the total amount of her debt? Uh, just a hair under 30000 And do you know how many different loans she actually has? Uh, all through the guaranteed uh, a federal direct loan program, four loans, 55, 65, 75, 75, each of her four years. Okay. Well, and if she goes, did you mention she might start graduate school? Yes. Okay. And so if she chooses to go the graduate school route, she can continue to have the interest deferred. And so is your question, based on her part-time income, should she start making payments or wait until she's done with grad school? Yes. Is it if she starts making payments now, is it something she can stop to go back to grad school? And then I know you lose a lot of protections if you refinance out of the federal program. And I would agree with that. I don't think you'd want to refinance outside of the federal program. And so mm -hmm. you'd want to contact each of them and say, look, if we start making payments, am I able to stop? My suspicion would be if she's in grad school, the answer would be yes, you could. Um, I'd be much more interested to, to look at her cash flow, though. We need to look at what income she's going to have, what her expenses are going to be. And quite frankly, does it make sense? Does she have the extra income while working part time and presumably having some expenses for grad school to actually be making payments, even if she can stop it? 
Right. So just continue with deferment until she has a final decision a year from now might be an option. I mean, I would lean that way unless she has an awful lot of income where she's not going to miss much. And, you know, she's working part time. So I I doubt that would be the case. But there's that financial planning element in addition to her eligibility to start making interest payments and then stop if she's in grad school. Right. All right. And Gary, what's her degree? In what field? Uh, it's just going to be a multidisciplinary degree with a, a psychology and an honors for uh, minors. And what is she planning to go to grad school to study? That's the $64,000 question. All right. So I would say she should not go to grad school. Um, grad school for a lot of kids is the alternative to getting a job. Uh, there, unless you can provide a specific ROI, return on investment, what specifically will she be able to do with that graduate degree that she is otherwise unable to do? How much will that job pay? And how does it justify the expense of obtaining the degree, not just the de- indebtedness, the cost of the tuition itself, but also the opportunity cost? Because a year in grad school is a year she's not working, a year she's not earning a salary, a year she's not contributing to a 401k and saving for her future. One year less of employment over the course of her working career. A study came out that I talked about in my book, The Truth About Your Future, showing that college kids today on average are spending six years in education, not four. And by going to school in those extra two years, they reduce their employment by two years. They delay by two years their savings for their future. The result, they end up with $300,000 less than someone who gets out of college after four years. Your daughter has to be able to provide you a business plan. What's the benefit and value to her for her personal finances over the course of her lifetime by delaying employment an extra year or two and incurring a massive tuition cost and loan repayment cost as opposed to simply going and getting a job and getting on with it? All right. Sounds good. Okay. Some tough love, Gary. I'll let you convey the message for us, all right? Thank you very much. It's a deal. Thanks for calling. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money. Truth sometimes hurts. You know, if I was Gary, I would ask you to make that call (laughs) to his daughter. Uh, And I'd be happy to, Gary. Have her call me, and I'll be glad to. Have her call 888-PLAN-RICK, just like you did, and I'll talk to her on the air, and I'll give her a little bit of what fur. Al is on the telephone. We're going to talk with him. He's in Burlington, Massachusetts. Al, you're on the air. How can we help you? Hello, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. Our pleasure. I've been considering uh, an irrevocable trust, and right now we have a revocable one. Um, But a lawyer is telling us that my age is too young to think think about it, but it keeps me up at night. Uh, Wait, 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 wait. What's keeping you up at night? I've been considering it more and more. Al, what is it that's keeping you up at night? Well, I'm 67, almost 68. And one never knows how long one is going to live. And I want to make sure that um, if I'm confined to a nursing home, I, we can't, we really can't afford uh, long-term care insurance. So I'm trying to avoid that, and this seems to be the best way to do it. Wait, wait, wait. what problem are you trying to solve, Al? The the eventuality that someday either one of us could have to go into a nursing home. And. 
you're worried that if you do, you're going to spend all of your money and there won't be any inheritance left for your children. Or enough for my wife to live on. Okay. Uh, an irrevocable trust isn't necessarily going to solve that problem for you. Uh, so you mentioned that you can't afford long-term care insurance. Tell me what your annual income is. Well, I'm retired, and uh, I'm not taking Social Security until age 70. Okay. So our, only, our annual income is only about thirty-five, forty thousand. And what's the source of that money? Pension, my wife's Social Security, and I'm taking on her record. You're taking spousal benefits? Right. Got it. And how much money do you have in savings and investments? About a million. And what's the value of your house? Five fifty. Is there a mortgage on it? A mortgage of about two hundred. So you have net equity of three hundred and fifty thousand. Right. How much money do you and your wife spend on a monthly basis? We spend about a hundred thousand a year. Brandon, what's your views of all of this? Have you, Al, have you ever looked at the long-term care insurance with somebody who can actually sit down and explain what your options are and how it works and what it might cost, what it might provide? I've had a sit-down with a gentleman from a long-term insurance firm. Short answer is this. Uh, your lawyer is right. You do not need an irrevocable trust. An irrevocable trust will not solve your problem. Long-term care insurance policy will solve your problem. It is affordable for you. Uh Perhaps you might need to make other adjustments within your lifestyle, but I'm not sure that you do. And I would strongly encourage you to uh, meet with one of our colleagues. Uh, we have offices in Burlington so that we can help you understand the proper approach. I think you're worrying yourself unnecessarily, Al. You're in much better condition than you realize. The solution is readily available. And I would love for you to let us help you with this because it's really upsetting when we come upon folks who are worrying when they don't need to worry. Um, it's one thing when you're in a mess, in a situation, in a predicament that you're struggling to get out of. Hell, that's not you. You're in a much better situation than you realize. Well, I, I, I realize that, and uh, I will take you up on your suggestion. Well, thank you very much for your advice, and I will call your office. We look forward to talking with you, Al. Thank you so much. I'm Rick Edelman with Brandon Corso. Al's going to call the phone number. You can call as well, 888-PLAN-RICK. Don't let complexity stump you. It might be the first time you're handling this. It's not the first time for us. Take advantage of our experience and our expertise. 888-752-6742 or online at rickedelman.com. Thanks for being with me here on the program this weekend. And let us know if we can help you. Take a look at our website at rickedelman.com for the latest seminar schedule all over the country. Seminar on helping you prepare for retirement. The education you need to make sound decisions. I'm Rick Edelman. See you next week. Remember, if you love the show, tell a friend. If you hate the show, tell an enemy.